0: That's the second trial. Peter is questioned over a charcoal fire. And that's where the similarities end and the contrast begins. While both men are questioned, while both men stand trial, only one gives faithful testimony. While both men have the opportunity to speak the truth, only one does at great cost to himself. The result is that by the end of the passage, it is strikingly clear that only one man is going to stand faithful to the end. Only one man is going to take up the cross all the way to the point of death. Only one man is able to save the wayward. And it's not Peter. Friends, I want to make the case to you today that the right way to read this passage is to see yourself in Peter's position. What is the starting point for all true discipleship? It's to recognize that before we can follow Christ, Christ must first die in our place. For our sin. For our unfaithfulness. The blazing bright takeaway. If your Bible had a neon sign that could flash at you, this is what the sign would say. Peter is unwilling and unable to accomplish the work that will save him. So Jesus provides what Peter cannot. If there's one takeaway from the passage, it's that Jesus alone is the one who is faithful to the end. Before we can follow Jesus faithfully as disciples, He must first die for our unfaithfulness. So that's how we're going to approach this Passage, Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. In what ways does Jesus provide what disciples will not and cannot provide for themselves? In what ways does Jesus provide what we cannot and will not provide for ourselves? There are three ways that Jesus provides for us in this passage. And each one of them is essential for understanding why the gospel is good news for sinners. Let's begin in verses 12 to 14, where Jesus' death provides a substitute for the unrighteous. Jesus' death provides a substitute for the unrighteous. Verse 12 wraps up Judas' treachery against Jesus, and it also provides the context for the ensuing trial. Look again at verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. We mentioned last week that the soldiers in verse 12 are are most likely Romans. So the best way to describe Jesus' arrest is that the world, Jew and Gentile alike, the world unites in opposing the Christ. All of humanity bears responsibility for the death of Jesus. In the immediate context, however, the responsibility is established first among the Jewish religious leaders. The Romans are going to take their turn in just a bit with Pilate. But for now, it's the religious leaders of the nation who take center stage. John makes this very clear in verse 13. Look there again. First, they led Jesus to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. We need to make two comments about this verse, one historical and one theological. Historically, the relationship between Annas and Caiaphas is is interesting. Critics of the Bible will sometimes point to this relationship as an example of Scripture's historical inaccuracy. But there's nothing inaccurate in verse 13. Annas had been the high priest earlier from AD 6 to AD 15, and after that, Annas functioned like the kingmaker in Jewish religious life. Five of Annas' sons or sons-in-law served as the high priest. And Caiaphas was arguably the most powerful of Annas's sons to serve in that office. So even though Caiaphas is the official high priest, even though he has the office, Annas still holds a lot of influence. That's why Jesus is brought before both of them eventually. He's brought before both Annas and Caiaphas. It's not that John is mistaken in his history. John is better acquainted with Jewish religious life than modern critics are. Right? So when somebody tells you, well, John just got his history wrong and made a mistake, you should probably look at that person with a bit of skepticism. I think John knew his subject matter better than you did. So John's not, he doesn't make a mistake here. He's simply relaying the situation as it was at the time. Jewish religious life was this weird mixture of family dynamics and power politics. So Jesus goes before both of the men because that's how it worked at that point. Historically, that's why Jesus is taken to Annas first. Theologically, the entire scene vividly illustrates the blinding power of sin. Remember, the Sanhedrin comprised Israel's experts in the law of Moses. These are the guys who are supposed to get the Bible right. They're experts in the law. D.A. Carson in his commentary on John says that there's this theme all through chapters 18 and 19 of John where the religious leaders are trying to prove how much they are upholding the law, how rigorous they are to the law. That's why they eventually charge Jesus with blasphemy. Because they're trying to prove that they uphold the law and he's the law breaker. So these are supposedly the experts. These are supposedly the experts in, in the Mosaic law. And yet, as Jesus stands there before them, they are blind to the truth. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. The law of Moses... Pointed to Jesus. In fact, Jesus is going to tell his disciples after the resurrection that everything in the law and prophets was ultimately about him. Jesus then is the flesh and blood embodiment of Old Testament hopes. What was Abraham waiting for? This man standing here on trial. That's what he's waiting for. And the Sanhedrin can't see it, the Pharisees are blind to him. Israel doesn't recognize her own Messiah. Friends, I'm not sure that there is a more convincing biblical argument on the nature of sin than this. How does sin affect the human heart? It blinds us so that we cannot see the truth. Well, how deep is that blindness, we ask? It's so deep that when Israel's Messiah shows up in the nation... The leaders of that nation don't trust Him. They conspire to kill Him. That's how deep sin's blindness goes. This is the blindingly powerful nature of sin in the human heart. When confronted with the flesh and blood embodiment of Old Testament hopes, those who possessed those hopes did not receive Him. They killed Him. And therefore, therefore, don't miss the therefore. Therefore, we ought to regularly pray that God would spare us from the blinding effect of sin. If you read this passage and shake your head and wag your finger at Caiaphas about how foolish and how blind he is, and you, don't miss the fa- and you miss the fact that that same sin is present in your heart, then you miss the point of the text. We're not supposed to sit in judgment over them at this point. We're supposed to be sobered by the fact that that same nature of sin indwells us. And so therefore, we ought to regularly pray for God to spare us from the effects of that sin. Whether it's evangelism with unbelievers or a sermon among Christians, our deepest need is always for God, by His Holy Spirit, to open our eyes. To see and treasure Jesus Christ. The reality is that we are often easily blinded by sin. In fact, we become so blinded by sin that we're blind to our own blindness. Do you believe that? Do you appreciate how deeply you and those around you need the Spirit's illuminating power in your life? Friends, if we appreciated the depth of that, we would be moved to pray. And if we don't appreciate the depth of that, then this passage ought to get our attention. The Sanhedrin were the experts in waiting for the Messiah, and when the Messiah comes, they can't see him. They kill him. That's a challenge to each one of us to be regularly re- renewed in praying for God to give us eyes to see. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. That's the theological point from Annas and Caiaphas. That theological point is so serious that it raises the question, if the Sanhedrin are blind, why are they able to succeed in putting Jesus to death? Why would God allow this? That's an important question. And John gives us the answer. Verse 14, look there with me. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. John alludes here to an exchange that happened earlier in chapter 11. If you remember that, that passage, the Sanhedrin, again, were debating what to do with Jesus. And their fear was that if Jesus's following got too great, the Romans would step in to take care of it. And that would infringe upon the Sanhedrin's religious authority. Any, any step up in Roman authority is a step back for the Pharisees And the high priest. And so it was at that point in John chapter 11 that Caiaphas offered a solution. It would be better for one man to die than for the entire nation to suffer. It was a pragmatic, if also sinister solution. Let Jesus be the substitute for the nation. That's what Caiaphas said. That statement from John 11 is what is being alluded to in verse 14. Without knowing the full significance of his words... Caiaphas is telling us what kind of death Jesus is going to die. And the key point here is substitution. Substitution. You hear it in the language of verse 14. It would be better that one man should die for the people. In the place of the people. As the substitute for the people. Caiaphas speaks better than he knows. And this is an essential component of the gospel. This is necessary for the gospel to be good news. When Jesus takes up the cross, He does not die for Himself. He does not die for His own sin. He's sinless. He dies as the substitute for His people. His death is substitutionary in nature to make atonement for the sins of others. Now, that might strike you as unfair. Or unjust of God. Why would God allow his innocent son to die? But you have to recognize friends. That without this substitutionary death. The gospel is not good news at all. Without the substitution. There's no answer for humanity's blindness. Without the substitution. There's no payment for our sin. Without the substitution, there's no cleansing for our unrighteousness. Without the substitution, there's no gospel. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, He alone is able to be our substitute. His blood is perfect in righteousness, and He is perfectly fitting to cleanse us through that blood. He alone can save us because He alone, as God in the flesh, is able to serve as our substitute. He dies for his people in the place of. So as difficult as these opening verses are, and and they're rather difficult, as blind as the human heart can be, there is a reminder of good news in these opening verses. And the good news is that God provided a Savior who would die for his people. Jesus' death provides a substitute For the unrighteous. As we move to verse 15. We see the second way Jesus provides what we could not and would not provide for ourselves. Jesus' faithfulness supplies strength to the weak. It's the second way he provides. Jesus' faithfulness supplies strength to the weak. We mentioned at the outset how this passage contrasts two trials, Peter and Jesus. That contrast begins in earnest in this section. Verse 15 tells us that Peter and another disciple follow Jesus at a distance to the house of Annas. Most likely the other disciple is John. John doesn't name himself, but it's most likely John. And it appears that John's family has some connections in Jerusalem, Because in verse 16, John arranges for Peter to come into the courtyard as well. And so the stage around this charcoal fire in the dark of night, the stage is set for for Peter's trial. And very quickly, Peter is found guilty of being unfaithful. Listen to verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Friends, everything about that brief interrogation is meant to contrast Peter with Jesus. As we already mentioned, Jesus is questioned by Annas, a man with significant authority. Peter, on the other hand, is questioned by a servant girl. She's a doorkeeper, really. She has no authority to harm Peter. And yet he shrinks back from her question without hesitation. No, Peter says, I'm not a disciple. Even Peter's denial finds its contrast with Jesus. Do you remember last week when the soldiers come and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember how quickly and how clearly Jesus identified himself? I am he, Jesus said. In the original, it's just two words. In verse 17, Peter's denial is equally clear and quick. I am not. Again, in the original, it's just two words. It's the same verb, negated. So at this moment, standing around a charcoal fire in the middle of the night, Peter is unfaithful. He denies his master. Now the irony of the moment is that Peter's answer in a way tells the truth. Peter says he's not a disciple. And tragically, right now, in verse 17, that's true. Peter is not following the master. He's not taking up the cross to follow Jesus. At this moment, it's only Jesus out front, walking faithfully, carrying the cross. Peter denies Christ. The scene shifts in verse 19. Do you notice how abrupt the shift is? We just go very quickly from Peter outside around the charcoal fire to Jesus inside before the council. That that shift Even the abruptness is purposeful. John wants to contrast the two men. He wants you to read it that way. Where Peter gave unfaithful testimony, Jesus stands firm. Notice Jesus' faithfulness. Verse 19, Annas questions Jesus about his teaching. There's some cultural background here that would suggest that this entire trial is illegitimate. Most likely, it was the case that Jewish law prohibited the authorities from questioning the defendant. You could question witnesses about the defendant. But you wouldn't question the, the defendant directly. So already it looks kind of shady. What's more the trial is happening at night. Which was also most likely illegitimate according to Jewish law. So Annas is questioning Jesus. But John is giving you all of these hints. That this entire trial is a sham. It's unrighteous. Jesus' words begin to reveal that unrighteousness by highlighting his own integrity, the, own, the, the truthfulness of his ministry. Listen to Jesus' reply, starting in verse 20. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. Put simply, Jesus' answer says that the trial is both unnecessary and unrighteous. You don't need to do this. Jesus' teaching has been public. Everything that he said in private to the disciples, he said in public in the temple. His ministry has been public. So if Annas wants to know what Jesus taught, there are numerous people that he could ask. Now, do you see the brilliance of Jesus' answer? Remember what we just said a moment ago about the The nature of this trial. How Jewish law often stipulated that the witnesses, not the defendant, were the ones that needed to be questioned. So given that fact, Jesus' answer is exposing the Sanhedrin's sinful motives. If you're really after the truth, Jesus says, then you wouldn't be questioning me in the middle of the night. If you're really after the truth, you could find one of the numerous witnesses like you're supposed to, and you could hear from themselves what I've said. If you're really after the truth. But that's just it, isn't it? They're not after the truth. Jesus' teaching has been consistent and public. He is no threat to the nation. If anyone is unrighteous, it's the religious leaders, not Jesus. And the response in verse 22 is proof of their unrighteousness. How do they respond to being confronted with the truth? With vindictiveness. Verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? So the officer thinks that Jesus has been disrespectful. That's why he hits him. But in reality, Jesus has simply told the truth, right? And if Jesus' truth-telling exposes annas's wicked heart that's not a reason to strike jesus that's a reason to repent that's jesus's point verse 23 jesus answered him if what i said is wrong bear witness about the wrong but if what i said is right why do you strike me again you need to see how jesus's words are exposing his enemies He's not the one who has orchestrated an illegitimate trial in the middle of the night. Jesus has taught openly in the daytime, in the temple, before all the people. If you want to know what he said, then just ask one of the people who heard. And if you you claim that he's wrong, then bring witnesses that he's wrong. But if Jesus is right, the only reason why you would strike him is because you feel the sting of conviction in your own heart. That's the only reason that you would oppose him is because he's getting too close to the truth that you're the unrighteous one who stands accountable to him. So, from beginning to end, from verse 19 to verse 24, how would you characterize Jesus in this passage? He's faithful, truthful, righteous, and strong. Now, let's put the two trials together. Peter and Jesus. One man, Peter, faces only servants, and yet he's unfaithful. The other man, Jesus, faces the authority of the nation, and to the end, he's faithful, true, and strong. Put the two trials together. What's the point of the contrast? It's a final, severe lesson in discipleship for Peter. It's one last lesson. It's a lesson that hurts. But it's one last lesson in discipleship for Peter. Do you you remember back in chapter 13 where Peter boasted that he would follow Jesus to the death? Do You remember that? The other disciples might turn away, but Peter's not going to turn away. Peter was so sure of his own strength. He was so sure of his own commitment that he would walk with Jesus to the very end. Everybody else might need Jesus to suffer in their place, but Peter doesn't need that. In Peter's mind, he's strong enough to make it all the way to the end. And so, with severe mercy, with severe mercy, the Lord Jesus exposes Peter too. The trial reveals what Peter truly needs. Not more of his own strength, but more of Jesus' strength in his place. I like, I like how one writer has put it. Peter cannot follow Jesus until Jesus has died for Peter. That's Peter's discipleship lesson learned in a sad moment over a charcoal fire in the middle of the night. Peter's not strong enough to save himself. He's not even strong enough to tell the truth. Only Jesus is faithful to the end. And it's Jesus' faithfulness that will answer Peter's weakness. In fact, the only way back for Peter at this point is for him to confess that apart from Christ he's nothing but weak it's one last discipleship lesson for Peter a few years ago the, the, J, the late J.I. Packer wrote a short book entitled Weakness is the Way some of you may have seen the book Weakness is the Way don't let the title fool you Packer's book is not some sanctified version of a defeatist attitude that traps Christians in a victim mentality. It's far from it. Packer's book is a meditation on precisely this point from John 18. That only when we confess our weakness do we find Christ's strength meets us in that moment. So I want to read Packer's conclusion to you because it's a really helpful application of Peter's discipleship lesson in John 18. This is what Packer writes. When the world tells us, as it does, that everyone has a right to a life that is easy, comfortable, and relatively pain-free, a life that enables us to discover, display, and deploy all the strengths that lie within us, the world twists the truth right out of shape. That was not the quality of life to which Christ's call led him, nor is it what we are called to do in the, in the 21st century. For all Christians, the likelihood is rather that as our discipleship continues, God will make us increasingly weakness conscious and pain aware, so that we may learn that when we are conscious of being weak, then and only then may we become truly strong in the Lord. And should we want it any other way? Friends, when we encounter circumstances that make us rely less on ourselves, we should thank God for showing us our weakness. He's leading us to Christ's strength. When we are confronted with how, fall, how far short we fall as disciples, our answer should not be to pretend and cover up all the ways that we're weak. That's the attitude that causes Peter to fall in the first place. He overestimated his strength, and then he fell. Instead, when we are confronted with how far short we fall in following the Lord, we should thank God that Jesus stood firm in every way when we would not. The goal of our weakness is to magnify the all-sufficient, never-failing, always-faithful strength of Jesus Christ. So when we encounter circumstances that make us rely less on ourselves, we should thank God that He's leading us more towards the Son. And the more we see Christ's faithfulness shining against the backdrop of our own weakness, the more we see His faithfulness, the more we we will trust Him the more we will rely less on ourselves and rely more on Him. The more we see Christ's strength shining against the black backdrop of our weakness, the more we will trust Him. And then something striking happens. At that moment, when we acknowledge our weakness and trust in Christ's strength, at that moment, at that moment, something striking happens. We find that when we are weak, Then we are strong. Not in ourselves, but in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus' faithfulness supplies strength to the weak. And therefore, we ought to thank God for any circumstance that makes us rely less on ourselves. He's leading us to the Savior. I want to close this morning with a final way that Jesus provides what we could not provide for ourselves. And, and this final word points ahead to the end of the book in order to remind us that Peter's story isn't over. From verses 25 to 27, Jesus' gospel promises restoration for the wayward. Jesus' gospel provides restoration for the wayward. We've already spent some time reflecting on Peter's denial In verse 17, but as you know, things get worse. Verse 25, Peter denies the master again. Look at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Coming so close after Jesus' faithful testimony, Peter's words stand out in some stark relief. When given the opportunity to identify with Jesus as a disciple, Peter denies him again for a second time. And then it happens again. Except this time, the questioner almost surely knows that Peter is lying. Listen again, verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked him, did I not see you in the garden with him? Man, these are dark moments for Peter, aren't they? There's actually a final contrast here with Jesus. I hesitated to point this out because there's already been so many that are difficult. But there's a final contrast here. What can the Sanhedrin not produce at Jesus' trial? A witness to contradict him. What stands up at Peter's trial? A witness that contradicts him. Surely, Peter's going to come clean this time, right? Right? Surely he's going to tell the truth. He doesn't. Verse 27. Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Mark's gospel tells us that Peter, uh, Peter swore a curse on himself. In that third denial. And Matthew's gospel tells us that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Three times Peter is questioned, are you a disciple? And three times with increasing anger, Peter denies the master. If you have ever wondered how far a believer can fall, Peter is your answer. We are not nearly as strong as we think we are. That's where the passage ends, on that bitter note. I can't end the message on that point. So I want to go one step farther. If you look at verse 27, you see that reference to the rooster crowing. That's a reminder that as bad as this is for Peter, Jesus is not surprised. Remember, the Lord predicted Peter's denial. Jesus knew that in the hour of testing, Peter would fall short. He predicted, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And that actually gives me some hope. Jesus knew that Peter would fall. And that means, even at this point, Jesus knows that he will restore Peter in the end. That's the note that I want to end on. Peter's denial is awful. It's heinous. It's cowardly. And it's unfaithful. Peter's denial is awful. But that must mean that Christ's grace which restores Peter in chapter 21, is greater than Peter's sin. If we are sobered by Peter's failure in chapter 18, and we ought to be, if we are sobered by Peter's failure in chapter 18, then we ought to be even more stunned by the mercy of Christ to Peter in chapter 21. There's a song that I really love. I love songs and I love fictional stories because they help me see the beauty of God's good news in everything that God has made. There's a song that I love called No Story Is Over. And I think of that song every time I read this passage because Peter's story isn't over, praise God. Chapter 18 is awful, but chapter 21 is coming. And just to give you a little preview, what happens in chapter 21 Jesus meets Peter on the shore of the sea and he's made him breakfast over a charcoal fire. And three times Jesus says, Do you love me? And three times Peter is able to say, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Chapter 18 is awful. Praise God, chapter 21 is coming. Brothers and sisters, I want to end on that note this morning. I want you to see... The promise of the gospel that is held out in Peter's darkest hour. The good news of the gospel is that though our sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. The blood of Christ is powerful enough to cleanse the worst sinner. We know that. The blood of Christ is also powerful enough to restore the most wayward disciple. That's what I want you to hear this morning. So if you've been wandering far from the Lord... Please, please, please hear me. Two more minutes. Please hear me. If you have been wandering far from the Lord, if this past week or this past month or this past year has been filled with way more failure than faith, if lately your preference has been for darkness and not for the light, then I hope that you will hear the good news of the gospel again this morning. There is hope for wayward disciples. Peter denied the Lord three times. And still, and still, the Lord used Peter to build his church. Don't stay far off. Don't keep wandering. If your last week or your last month or your last year has been filled with way more failure than faith, don't stay away. Come back. Come back. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a moment. The table of the king. And what makes you worthy of this table is not how many good things you've done. Do you hear me? What makes you worthy of this table is not how many good things you've done. What makes you worthy of this table is not how strong you have been in your faith. What makes you worthy of this table is just the opposite. It's coming, confessing, knowing that you have nothing to merit or earn a seat at this table. You didn't even make this meal. Someone else made it for you. The Lord Jesus. His body, His blood, not yours. We're going to come to the table in just a moment. What calls you to the table is not your righteousness. It's not the strength of your faith. It's not your public stands for truth. What brings you to the table is is your weakness in acknowledging that apart from Christ, I have nothing. So as we sing this final song in just a moment, please take that time afforded to you to bring sin into the light. If you are wandering far off, don't stay far off. Come back. Come back. Bring your sin to the light. Confess it before God. And receive again the blessing of forgiveness. Chapter 18 is awful. Praise God, Jesus restores the wayward. I pray that you'll hear it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need to confess to you that we are often, often, often prone to overestimate our own strength. We are not as strong as we think we are. We are not as faithful as we claim to be. We are not as upright As we like to present. We are weak. We often fail. We often do not trust you. Oh God forgive us. Help us to see sin in all of its awful reality. So awful that only your blood could save us. Move us this morning. Break us in repentance. And then restore us again with the hope of the gospel. That if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us from all sin and to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. Father, I pray specifically that as we sing this last song, that our hearts would be moved now to be renewed in repentance and faith. That we would bring our sin into the light. That we would do business with you now in confession And receive again the cleansing that comes from Christ's blood. And then come to the table renewed in repentance and faith. Father, have your way among us even now. As we sing and as we prepare. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.